Welcome to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In this episode, we'll be looking at Second Variety. Now, Second Variety was originally published in Space Science Fiction in May 1953. Um, it was originally in collected in the second volume of the Collected Stories of Philip K. Dick, but it's been moved to the third volume. And I, as I think I talked about in a previous episode, the this five-volume collection of Philip K. Dick short stories were originally published after he died sometime in the mid 80s and they've you know they've been in pretty much in print since then um, I don't think they've ever been out of print but the publishers have kind of switched the stories around a little bit often to take advantage of, of movies coming out so for instance paycheck is the name of the first volume the second volume was named do you remember wholesale which is you know the foundation of total recall the fourth volume gets it gets the name Minority Report. Um, the third volume gets the name Second Variety. It was originally again called something else. In fact, this used to be in in the second volume, and they moved it. Um, this is this was just marketing of these short story collections. So um, depending on which edition you have, you might find it in different places. It's really one of his most popular stories. It's been anthologized actually more often than just the collected stories. It shows up in a lot of the short story collections of Dick's works. And I also think that if you look at it chronologically, as I've been doing this podcast, and not just as they show up in the volumes, if you read it in the third volume, you think, you know, that this is kind of, it's a great story, but it's par for the course of what Dick had been writing. But when you look at these stories in the chronological order of publication or writing, this is really a step forward for Philip Dick. It's... Um, in the prose style, in the ideas, in the richness of the ideas, in the emotional power of the story, in all those ways, it's really a big step forward. All right, so, so let's get into this story. Um, the, the setting for this story is a war-ravaged Earth, really an Earth in which war has consumed all the natural resources, much of the human life, and for whatever reason, war is continuing on in new ways. There's no end to the war. It seems the war is going to go on until the last human is dead. And that's certainly what's applied at, at the end of the story. There is a sequel to the story called John's World, which uh, it'll be interesting. We'll talk about that when we, when we get there. So there is a glimmer of hope if you look at it in the sequel. But there's no hope in this story. This story is it's as bleak as the bleakest Outer Limits episode you've, you've ever seen. Okay, so as it starts, we see two UN soldiers, and you know they're really just the remnants of the UN army, and they see a soldier uh, from Russia climbing a hill. So it's the UN versus Russia. That's the war. Uh, again, this was written during the peak of the Cold War, and and th those motifs are in this story too. The the futility of war, the massive destruction that will come from nuclear war, the role of technology in war, all these things come from Dick's Cold War background, and their um, pulled out here more better than in any previous story that he he wrote they're about to just 
fight each other to you know kill the soldier but they watch they witness him being uh, destroyed by a, a claw now the claws are the automatic robot soldiers these things have different names and different stories in the defenders they were called oh, what were they called again they weren't called claws sorry they're leddies they were called leddies in in the defenders and later on in the penultimate troop but here they're called claws uh and partially because they are more violent they're they're automated robot soldiers their job is just to to kill the enemies they go and check out the body and they find the russian was carrying a message in an aluminum container um, the soldier was a runner attempting to deliver a message to the local un forces they're requesting a meeting basically it's not clear whether it's a peace meeting or they're going to talk about something else but it's a it's an attempt to try to open up conversation between the two sides in this conflict major hendrix who had been cooped up in his bunker for too long decides you know why not let's go this you know the war is the war is getting pretty boring by that this point for them there's not that much combat going on these are just the remnant soldiers well, the, the war is over but it just drags on and on with no real end in sight i don't even think there's much evidence that there's a, a government except maybe on the moon yeah the government's on the moon so hendrix is bothered uh by the claws he has these protective wristbands that show him as a un soldier and therefore he shouldn't be killed by the claws they're supposed to be programmed only to kill the russians um, and he takes comfort that they're finally allowing the war to end i mean that's the bright side here i guess of this automated warfare is that these claws are going to go and slaughter the russians and end the war once and for all there won't be much left for anyone but um you know at least it will end so we get the history of the war at this point the soviet union began it with this massive nuclear strike washington retaliated um, and the leadership moved to the moon the americans kept production going on earth but this was prevented by a soviet invasion so production of war materials moved to the moon and after the first couple of years of the war the only human population really remaining on earth were these pockets of survivors and soldiers so we have really a post-apocalyptic climate but it's not it's a, it's a world that's still fighting which i think is really a little bit different than a lot of other post-apocalyptic tales about war often at the end of, you know the war ends and then the survivors make do um, but here the war just keeps going on and it's so bleak and it's so pathetic actually that how the war drags on for no real purpose they're fighting over a, a, a heap of charred bones and cities so the soviets were about to win the war when the un developed the claws which were automatically produced in these underground factories so they're turning out so we have an auto fact um, again another common theme in dick's work it's not the first time we've seen automated warfare it's showed up you know in one of his first stories actually the gun hendrix believes that the meeting may be to arrange surrender terms so he goes and he's glad that the claws have finally won the war and then we get it we get this classic scene that all philip dick k dick fans know about and remember it's actually on the cover of of the second variety book at least my edition and we meet a boy david holding a teddy bear the boy explains that he lives in the ruins and he comes out looking for things to eat. He's quite a pathetic boy. He's one of these, he seems to be one of these survivors and there, there's quite a few of them on earth and the soldiers, you know, make do with them, but you know, they're, they're there. Hendrix really has a trouble believing that he's still alive and therefore travels with them for a while. Bit curious about, about what might be there. Hendrix tries offering David food, but David refuses. And this creates a suspicion in Hendrix that 
we might have a mutant on our hands that maybe he's a mutant who doesn't have to eat or maybe he's he's some kind of post-human and pack that away in future stories we're going to really be able to begin to unpack dick's vision of the post-human of the mutant um he hasn't really entered it yet in this chronological reading but we're going to get to it pretty soon the um it's a it's an, it's, it comes up a lot in the novels. It's all uh, explored in the stories. And I think it's one of these underappreciated aspects of, of Dick's work is really what his vision of the post-human actually is. So later, Hendrick sees two soldiers with a woman, two Russian soldiers with a woman. The soldiers then shoot David. Hendrix assumes that they'll be killed next and that the meeting was just a trap to get them out and kill them. Um, and then the soldiers proceed to show him that David was a robot. Uh, these Russian soldiers are the sole survivors in an attack on the Russian forward base, um, the, really kind of the headquarters of the remaining Russian soldiers in this part of the world. One soldier is a Polish conscript. The other is Austrian. So we get a little bit of background here and perhaps the coalition that the Russians created. You know, kind of this is Eastern European uh, Warsaw Pact coalition and that they were drawing soldiers from there. The woman, Tasso, is a prostitute that Rudy and Klaus were visiting during the attack on the forward base. So they become kind of a band of survivors. Rudy explains that the Russians have been had known for weeks that the Claws have been creating their own upgraded versions. And they use pathetic figures. They use like the starving boy, wounded soldiers or, the, you know, robots like this to sneak into bunkers. So the robot plan is then to create robots that are sympathetic. It's it's not the Terminator, even though it's a similar idea of a the robot who looks like a human to get close to you. But the focus here is on really pathetic figures. So the starving boy is the third variety and the wounded soldier is the first variety. So you can guess, well, where's the second variety? The story is called Second Variety. And so you, you can start to think at this point, um, you know, is one of these soldiers the second variety? Who is it? But the more scary, and this is really what the Russians wanted to talk about, is that they stopped differentiating between UN forces and Soviet forces. So with most of the Soviet bunkers compromised by the, the clause, their only hope is to inform the UN forces and basically come to some kind of agreement to either fight the clause or to get them to stop producing them or something. It's pretty hopeless at this point if the clause are being produced in automated factories and don't differentiate one side or the other. Hendricks tells him that the moon base, which is really not known by the Soviets, it seems the Soviets didn't really know about it. They, they thought it was rumored by the Soviet military that there was a moon base. But Hendricks tells them that, well, we may all die out here, but at least the moon base will be safe. Um, but the Soviet response is, well, the machines only need to get one inside and it will let all the others in. And that evening, Hendricks learns that Tasso, who is, a, who is Russian and came to the front when she was 16 and began working as a prostitute. And here we get a sense of just how long the war has been and how people can work a whole career as a prostitute really on the front lines. Uh, there's a lot of kind of World War I frontline imagery, I think, in this story, and I'll, I'll get to a little bit later on with a few passages. Kloss enters and restrains Rudy with his gun, and Kloss tells Hendrik and Tasso that Rudy is the second variety. Hendricks and Tasso point out in horror discuss that Rudy was not a machine. Um, so that's it seems they were wrong about who the second variety is. So we got a little bit of a, a kind of a clue situation here where you got a small group of people in a building trying to figure out who, you know, the secret agent is or who the robot is. Um, and Dick has a lot of fun with this and this story and others 
maybe fun's the wrong term, but he, he explores it pretty deeply here. It's a little bit funner in other stories. Um, the three survivors then make their way to the, to the UN base. Tasso points out that these different varieties seem not to communicate and were made in different factories. And when they approach the base, Hendrix tries to talk to the people inside, demanding that they, they come out. Um, and when they come out at... A, so these two people come out of the bunkers. They're both Davids. They're both these third variety, the poor, pathetic boy variety. They fight. A bunch of claws attack them. At this point in Tasso, one of the soldiers uses this bomb, destroying many of the claws. No, sorry, Tasso is the prostitute, right? So Tasso just, you know, destroys many of the claws. She shoots and destroys claws, who's revealed to be also a claw, presumably of the second variety, who's also kind of presumed to be the second variety of, of claws. So we have this um, suspicions leading to this, this, these deaths, and they seem to have exposed who the second variety is. The claws model, I guess, is what the idea is. After the battle, Tasso and Hendrix conclude that their only hope is to escape to the moon base. So that's who's left. There's the prostitute and Hendrix, this commander of the UN base. Hendrix knows about a secret rocket cruiser hidden in the area that's designed to travel to the moon base in case of an emergency. And they search, they find the ship, and there's room for only one person. And since Hendrix is injured, Tasso must go and return with help. So, you know, Hendrix provides Tasso with information about the location of the moon base, and she departs for the cruiser. Now, you pretty much figured it out at this point that Tasso is also a claw. Uh, perhaps she's the real second variety. I don't know if she's actually the fourth variety. Um, no, the, she's the second variety. Um, Kloss figure, or Hendrix figures this out by looking at the body of Kloss, and he finds actually the labeling on Kloss's body, and there's like a, a version four. Uh, and so it seems that the Tasso model, the prostitute, is the second variety. So that, that releases the, that figures out the, that solves the mystery. His final thoughts are that Tasso, the Tasso model he traveled with, used a bomb designed to kill claws, it was proving that there is infighting between these different varieties of claws, but also that the moon base is going to be compromised now by a claw, and that will probably lead to the end of humanity. The last survivors either on Earth or the moon will be killed. And the claws at that point will just continue the war themselves. They have the automated factories, they have the desire to fight each other, and the war will go on and on and on, even when the last human is dead. So um, this theme that machinery will continue as programmed even when the purpose of its programming is no longer necessary is um, explored here. Well, so I'm already at 18 minutes or so, and I haven't even yet gotten to uh, the analysis of the story. Um, now, Second Variety is one of those stories that's been commonly anthologized it's known to most Philiptic fans. It's been made into a movie. The movie is Screamers, and actually I haven't seen it. I haven't actually seen most of the Philip Kiddick movies. I think the only ones, I, I saw Total Recall when I was young, and I, I saw seen Blade Runner. But I don't think I've seen actually any other of the Philip Kiddick movies. I've seen a lot of the cyberpunk genre that's been influenced by Philip Dick, of course, but not many of his actual um, movies. So I'm not going to really review those in this podcast. Maybe at some point in the future I'll watch them and, and give you my thoughts on them. But this one shows up a lot. It's been really anthologized. It's been picked up by scholars. 
I'm sure it's been read in literature classes. And Dick thought this story was special too. He wrote in the in his in the li in the liner notes we have um, for this story. This was these notes were written in 1976, maybe in a letter. He says, my grand theme, who is human and who only appears as human, emerges most fully. And thus we can individually and collectively be certain of the answer to this question. What we face, in my view, is the most serious possible problem possible. Without answering adequately, we cannot even be certain of our own selves. I cannot even know myself, let alone you. So I keep working on this theme. To me, it's important. It's as important as a question. And the answer comes very hard. So it doesn't have to be war that and it could just be the human who who is emotionally a robot right the schizoid figure which you'll explore especially in um uh, what's the name of that story we can build you that's the novel we can build you where he really has the the robotic figure who is programmed with emotions and empathy and the human who is incapable of emotions because she's a uh, basically essentially a psychopath you have that, you have things like the autofac, where um, the machinery, uh, the infrastructure keeps producing without regards to human interest, unlike most productive you know, systems. You think they're producing for human need, but they're not. They're producing for their own, pro to just fulfill their own programming, leading to negative effects for human beings. And you have, of course, the humans who become part of a machine, whether through their work, their training, you know, being in an industrial society, you have humans who are inert, often in dick stories, putting cryo, freezing. These kinds of things really start to fuzzy the line between human humanity and machines. It's not just the am I a robot question that you have in Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep and, and especially in Blade Runner that really they really develop that theme of, you know, who am I? Am I really am I possibly a robot? That's more in the movie than it is even in the story. So it's really, this story though is so brutal and so memorable that I think it's such a great introduction to this theme of, of Dick's better. It's probably the best ex exploration he's done of it up to this point in his career, in those first couple years. I think what makes it so memorable is its brutal honesty and about putting it in the logic of war. It was really timely at a, at a time when war really was seen as pointless for a lot of people. I think in, when it was written, the Korean War was still going on. And that probably to Dick's mind seemed like a futile, endless war that really didn't have any purpose. Um, so it was kind of a foreshadowing perhaps of what the wars between the Russians and the Americans would be. Just kind of a brutal fight into the last man over scraps of, to the last man for scraps of land. The suggestion on almost every page of Second Variety is the massive of indifference of the institution to human life. It was this logic which led into the design of the clause, which was designed not to preserve life or not even necessarily to win the war, but to maximize death, to maximize their ability to kill the enemy. Second Friday might be science fiction's answer to Paths of Glory, uh, Cobb's novel, which was, of course, made into the movie. You know, in Cobb's novel, you have soldiers who their individuality, their purpose, and their, their needs, their and eventually their lives are simply sacrificed for the institution of war. And I urge you to go look at uh, David Simon's commentary on Paths of Glory. It's on YouTube. It, it does a really good job of showing how the institution, you know, in the context of war, the institution is indifferent to the individual. It's, it's there that the test of whether your institutions really are human-centered or if they're 
self-serving is tested most thoroughly. Second variety deromanticizes war, showing it as a bu the bureaucratic logic of it. How do you maximize death? How do you kill most efficiently with the least cost to your own side? Um, the, the, the bureaucratic logic of as long as we end the war in the black, right? as long as we kill more of them than, we, than they kill of us, we can call it a victory. And Dick here shows that, you know, that's, that's not how it's going to end out, up, obviously. It's the systematic indifference that we're struck by all the time. One reason readers may not feel too bad about the ending, actually, which foreshadows the end of humanity, of course. The, the lunar base will be infiltrated, the last refuge of humanity destroyed. Um, the, the remaining humans will be perhaps mutants on Earth or a few scattered surviving soldiers. Tragically, it's, it's the humanity of the soldiers that the Claws are able to exploit, isn't it? It's not, you know, one wonders, I suppose, if, well, one wonders if the Claws will be as effective on the moon base because on Earth, the soldiers have enough humanity that they can still be affected by a wounded soldier or a, a poor boy and they want to help them. You know, even the attractive woman can still touch their heartstrings in a way. They take advantage of humanity that remains. It's abused, it's abandoned, it's long-suffering. The soldiers have no future. They're basically waiting to die. But yet they're capable of this humanity, and that's what becomes exploited by the institution, um, eventually by the claws when they get their own kind of consciousness. Um, both Second Variety and Paths of Glory emphasize the complete horror of war and the misery of military life in the era of total war. Um, Dick is, is probably as good as he ever is in describing the bleak landscape of a war-torn society, war-torn country here. Quote, the American bloc government moved to the moon base in the first year. There was not much else to do. Europe was gone, a slag heap with dark weeds growing from the ashes and bones. Most of North America was useless. Nothing could be planted. No one could live. A few million people kept going up in Canada and down in South America. But during the second year, Soviet parachutes began to drop. At first a few and then more and more. They, won the f they wore the first really effective anti-radiation equipment. What was left of the American production moved to the moon along with the governments. All but the troops. The remaining troops stayed behind as best they could. A few thousand here, a platoon there. No one knew exactly where they were. They stayed where they could, moving alarmed at night, hiding in ruins, in sewers, cellars, with the rats and snakes. It looked as if the Soviet Union had the war almost won, except for a handful of projectiles fired off from the moon daily. Now, as Hendricks recounts, quote, they re the remain their remaining troops stayed behind as best they could. A few thousand here, a platoon here. No one knew exactly where they were. They stayed where they could, moving out at night, hiding in ruins and sewers, cellars with the rats and snakes. So this is a good summary, I, I think, of the end logic of war for, for Philip Dick. Um, of course, we have identity playing a role here. Hendricks fights for the UN, but he identifies as American. The two Russian soldiers he meets are actually conscripts from Poland and Austria. And so although the world is divided into these two sides in this endless war, there's great diversity of local identities on both sides. 
This is an important reminder in the age of total war, where you have these massive numbers of people from, you know, fighting in these coalitions, wars spanning the entire globe. Not everyone in those wars are going to have, you know, a, a, an ideological or nationalist reason for serving on those wars. During World War II, for instance, the Japanese recruited Filipinos and Indonesians and Taiwanese and other people from their empire into, into the war effort. So we should talk about the robots here. You know, obviously, Philip Dick doesn't think much of Asimov's laws, or at least doesn't find them very interesting intellectually. Um, he, I, 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 you know, when I was writing on Second Variety before, I suggested that there's really maybe a new set of laws that Philip Dick is, is developing here. Um, certainly one of these is kind of garbage in, garbage out. So if you program a robot to misuse the environment through production. If you program a robot to kill, that's what you're going to get, right? And I think this is, it doesn't contradict Asimov's laws because I think they are obey, they're told to obey, right? That's one of Asimov's ro robotic laws. But so they obey, but if you, they're obeying bad laws, if they're obeying bad orders, bad commands, bad programming, you know, it, you're not, you're not going to have a good outcome out of that. If you create a job, a robot whose job is killing, killing is what it'll do. Even, but it might develop beyond those original capacities, but that's still going to be the end goal of that robot's existence. A second one I think is related to this, and that is robotic systems will tend towards greater aut automation and autonomy. Right. So this, I think, is really undercutting Asimov's entire philosophy of robots. You know, and it, it's in a sense, it's, it it undercuts the first point I'm, that. Saying that you know garbage in, garbage out, certainly. But if robotic systems will develop, they won't undo entirely their programming. They'll still sort of do what they've been programmed to do, but they will have a little bit of autonomy there. They won't develop total freedom from their programming, but they will be a bit creative with that. So you have the leddies in the defenders who reprogram themselves in a way, or or, or push their programming to its logical extent. To, uh, to end the war and to broadcast false images to humanity to build up a world towards peace. Um, here, they develop new ways to kill, new ways to fight. Uh, and we can find some evidence of this in the text. Uh, quote, found out that your claws were beginning to make up new designs on their own, new types of their own, better types, down in your underground factories behind our lines. You let them stamp themselves, repair themselves, made themselves more and more intricate. This is your fault this happened. So there there might be others, so we can think through what perhaps um, Philip Dick's kind of laws of robotics might be. Certainly one of these is going to be, you don't know if you're a robot or not, right? So anyways, I don't want to get this episode too long, but this is really a great story. It's very important. It's got some of the best imagery by Philip Dick about a, a blasted landscape from war. It's one of his bleakest early stories. Um, in the sense, it's I think it's the first time he's kind of brought all humanity into the devastation of war. It's been more personal before, and stories like The Gun, here it becomes um, total. We could have for, perhaps imagined The Gun as almost a sequel, a long-term sequel to Second Variety. Certainly, the, the civilization in The Gun you know, was destroyed by war, right? And in part destroyed by an automated conflict. So there might be a relationship there. But that was a very personal story about a group of explorers. This uh, is, we actually see the civilization in 
being dismantled, um, completely destroyed by conflict. Um, well, that will do it for this episode. Uh, thanks so much for listening. The next episode will be The Preserving Machine, which is a lot more fun, a lot more relaxed. Um, but uh, I think it's got some interesting stuff to say, too. So um, please rate or comment. If, if you want to contact me, you can write me at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, uh, if you're interested in this, you might be interested in my 100 Pages um, project, which is on the same thread, the same um, um, feed. And this will... This will look at American writers more broadly. So thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time in the Philip K. Dick Book Club. Hero,